0: If you are between the ages of 4 to 8, you're excused to Kids Club. We are in the, our 8th week of a series entitled Design and Deception. Considering God's great design and Satan's work of deception, And this week we'll be handling a, and building a biblical view on family. As we began this series, we started in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And stated every week, this is the beginning of our worldview. In the beginning, God. Not me, him. In the beginning, God. He is the creator. He is to be worshipped and he is the king. And subsequently, and just as important, I'm a creature, a worshipper, and not the king. God created man, gave him purpose, relationship, and boundaries, and gave us design. And almost immediately following that, Satan stepped into the picture and gave us deception. That's kind of formed the basis of our series, design and deception. Friend Satan has always been at work. He started in the garden with Adam and Eve, challenging them with a question. A question designed to strike at the heart of God. A question designed to strike at their relationship with him. Challenging God's authority and his trustworthiness. And in effect, Satan walks into Adam and Eve and tells them, you don't have to do what this guy says. You should be your own king. You should do what you want. And God won't judge you. This was Satan's first victory with man. Convincing us that God would not judge sin. A lot of our conversation as we've worked through this series has been framed around Judges 17.6, which says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This verse, it shows up four times in the book of Judges. When there's no king, everyone will do what is right in their own eyes. And we live in a similar time today. As we continue in this series this morning... I want to keep reminding you that the purpose of our teaching series is to hold high a view of God's Word, to hold high its boundaries, and to set us up in a position where we allow Him as a Creator, Him as our God, Him as our King, to say no to us, and to remember, as we do every week, that our desire is for us to be challenged by the Word of God, to consider it for ourselves, and rather than looking at others, to consider me first. And to be reminded, as we are every week, that we all fall short. And the grace of Jesus abounds, forgives, renews, and calls us away from sin. So for the last two weeks, we walked through singleness, we walked through marriage. So it would only be fitting now that we walk into what it looks like to have a family. Two weeks ago, we started with this verse. We're going to stick with it for a couple more weeks. Colossians 2.10 says this, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. We considered this two weeks ago to note that Christ is our fullness and it's not our relationship status. In fact, last week, we tried to pound home the idea that not even your spouse is intended to be your fullness, that our fullness can only rightly be found in him. And yet we find it's tempting for many of us to find our fullness in our family, to look at our kids, to look at our grandkids, To look at those around us and make that our fullness. And friends, family, is not our fullness. It can't be. It can't be our identity. So whether you want to look at your kids, your spouse, your siblings, your parents, or even your dogs, please know they will all fall short. Please know it will be entirely disappointing to you. That your fullness can only be found in Jesus Christ. So if our fullness is him and a spouse can only be a compliment, as we worked through last week, then the next logical step for us to consider is what role does our family play? What role does my kids play? And I think God will answer that from his word for us again this morning. But let's take a, a quick note and go 11 verses earlier in the book of Colossians. We're going to use this as our jump-off point this morning. Colossians one twenty-eight. This is what Paul writes. Him we proclaim... It is him we proclaim. This is again a reinforcement of our worldview. It's him we proclaim. It's about him. The him is capitalized. It's the Lord. It's him we proclaim. It's not me. You want a quick gut check? Step into your life and ask who you proclaim Is it him? Is it me? Is it my wife? Is it my kids? Is it my family? What am I proclaiming? Because what Paul puts forth here is it's him we proclaim. It's him we proclaim. He is our identity. He is our fullness. And he is our message. It's him we proclaim. And Paul explains that as he goes further saying, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. He uses these words, warning and teaching everyone. Everyone. Now you don't have to be an astute Bible scholar to define everyone, do you? Everyone is everyone. It's your parents, it's your kids, it's your nieces and nephews. it's your grandkids, it's your neighbors, it's your coworkers. Everyone is everyone, and we warn them. Why? Because it matters. Because it literally is a heaven and a hell issue. We proclaim him because we believe that hell is a real place. And we believe that the deceiver is actively at work. And we teach. Why? Because people need to know the truth. People need to be confronted with the truth. We proclaim him because he is the answer to our needs. And we proclaim him by warning and teaching. And to this end, as Paul would say that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And this is Paul's end. Everyone mature in Christ. He takes it the next the next step further in 29 says, "For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he may powerfully that he powerfully works within me." Paul says, "I struggle to this end, working with all of his energy that he is working through me. I struggle that we might p- present everyone mature in Christ. For the last two weeks, we've taken a passage. A passage that's true for everyone and especially true for our subject matter. And this week is no different. In Colossians 1.28, Paul gives the aim and mission of all believers, which is true for us and especially true for parents. In him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So what role does our family play discipleship? We're called to be their spiritual parents, not just their earthly parents. We're called to pour into them. It's to our kids we proclaim. It's to our grandkids we proclaim. It's to our cousins, nieces, nephews, aunts, uncles, third removed, define it how you will. It's to our families we proclaim by warning and teaching that we might present them mature in Christ. And this ought to be the goal, it ought to be the mission of our family. So let's look at design for a minute. That's how we've put this series before you. Let's consider design. And if you walk through Genesis, you might not find it clearly laid out for you. It's not prescribed in Genesis. But God gives us a really clear look in Deuteronomy. So turn to Deuteronomy 6 with me. As we walk into some more elements of design. By the way, it's page 150 in your Red Pew Bible. If you don't have one, open it up. We'd like for you to see that this is God's word, not Ben's word. It's his authority, not mine. Just want you to double check that. that We're working from his book. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, this is Moses speaking. Moses says, now this is the commandment, the statues and the rules. Now as Moses is working through this, he's preparing the Israelites to go into the promised land. He's teaching them and preparing them. He's just giving them the Ten Commandments, which by the way, in the book of Deuteronomy are not called the Ten Commandments, they're called the Ten. It's here where he gets to a commandment. The idea here in Deuteronomy is that all those rules, all the moral law of God, falls under this. Jesus would affirm that in the New Testament. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going into to possess it. Moses is instructing the Israelites and preparing them to go to the promised land, Moses stands in front of two million-ish people to teach them, to consecrate them, to prepare them. And this is his perspective. This is what God tells me to tell you so that you'll do it, so that you'll obey God's word. And if you take his word literally in your obedience, you'll possess all that God has for you. In verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God. And in this context, as Moses is calling these people to obedience, fear is not used as a means of intimidation. Rather, fear, in this context, is an issue of obedience. You would fear God. You would show reverence to God. You would honor God. You would respect God by your obedience. You acknowledge Him. By obeying. And watch this. Because it's not just you. That you may fear the Lord your God. You and your son. And your son's sons. By keeping all of his statues and commandments which I command you. And all the days of your life. All of your days. And that all of your days may be long. And you see what Moses does here. Because it's not just about you, it's about you and your kids and your grandkids. See, Moses intentionally uses this as a multi-generational text. It's not just about a dad pouring into a son, but let's not miss it. It's about a dad pouring into a son. But it's about a mom pouring into their kids. It's about a grandparents pouring into their kids. It's about a family teaching the Bible to each other. It's not just me, it's the whole family. That Moses wants to put before them that in our obedience, our sons and our sons' sons will watch our lives, they'll see us, they'll learn the statutes and the commandments. Why? By watching our lives. See, we miss the fact that these guys didn't have Bibles in their hands and their pockets. They weren't stowing a Bible in their bag. This was a group of people that Moses went and met with God and brought them God's word. And they heard it. And they obeyed it. And they learned it by watching gospel obedience, if you'll let me say it that way. Friends, this morning our desire is not to place you and your family back under the law. In John 1.17, John puts it this way, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we who have claimed the name of Jesus have been freed from the law, but step into this. We've not been freed from obedience. God still has a call in our life that we would obey him. And Moses puts a principle Before the Israelites here that stands before us this morning, your obedience to God is a testimony to others of what you believe about him. Your obedience to God is a testimony to others. Now in a multi-generational text setting, this means my kids ought to watch my life. And they ought to be able to determine by watching my life what I believe about God, is it consistent with how I walk? And that's not just true about me, by the way. My kids ought to look at their parents. They ought to look at their grandparents. They ought to look at their aunts and uncles. And they ought to look at you. And do you recognize that your own issue with pursuing obedience in your life testifies to my kids? Unless we make this all about me. But it is little. Please obey for my kids' sake. It's about your kids too. That that's the whole point of a church sometimes is that we would gather together as a gathered body that my life wouldn't just be a testimony to my kids but your life would be a testimony to kids. My life would be a testimony to your kids and it all gets worked out as all of our kids watch faithfulness played out in all of our lives. Because here's the kicker. Not all of us are perfect. Some of us have royally blown it. And guess what? Our kids need to see that. We don't need to set up this little dichotomous world where everything is perfect and cheesy and wears a WJD bracelet all the time. We need to expose our kids to the fact that there are people amongst us who radically and royally blow it, and yet Jesus is still gracious to. Why? Why? What are the chances your kids are going to be perfect? Many of you have parented way longer than mine. If you've got perfect kids, would you raise your hand? We're going to spend the next hour listening to you. See, nobody. And yet we we tend to, as a church, as a people group, want to hide this fact that sin happens. We expect perfection. As if grace isn't a reality for us. Guys, we don't live under the law. We live under the grace of Jesus Christ that decries none of us is perfect. We all blow it. We all make mistakes. And it's because of him that we can gather. It's because of his forgiveness we can gather. But our obedience is a testimony. It's a testimony to everyone in a multi-generational way. It's true for all of us. Our obedience testifies to what we believe about God. Simply put, your example matters. And I think we've been clear about that. I'm not asking for perfect examples, we're asking for honest examples. That we would live our lives in such a way that when we blow it, we seek redemption, we seek forgiveness. we walk with Jesus. Your example matters. Moses continues in verse 3. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it might go well with you, and that you might multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, and the land flowing with milk and honey. And again, he reminds them, be careful to do them. Talking about these commandments, talking about obedience, be careful to do them. Moses reminds them. Yesterday I had the privilege of attending the men's breakfast here at Calvary. I don't always get here, family life gets in the way, but it worked out for me to be here yesterday. If you've never been to one, I suggest you try it, if you're a guy especially. It'd be weird if you were a woman and you showed up. Yesterday, Austin Shower challenged the men to lead and examined life. To look at ourselves, to find biblical texts and ask, where are we measuring up? It was an absolutely challenging message. I didn't want it at all. But you know what? It forced me to go home and start asking questions. Where in my life do I just check out? Where in my life do I just sit back and say, oh, I'm exhausted. It's been rest time. Where in my life do I punt the idea that I'm an example? Where in my life have I categorized my life to where Ben is on and Ben is off? And when Ben is on, I want you to all look at me and watch what I'm doing, and when Ben is off, don't watch anything, because I'm a slug. And I don't think I'm the only one. See, we try to play this dichotomous life where we do one thing, we act one way, and we're around certain people, we look one way, And I think what the Bible calls us to, what Moses is calling even these Israelites to, is be careful. Be obedient all the time. Follow God all the time. And in this context, having put it before you to know that you're an example. That people are watching. Your kids are watching. Matthew 5.16 Jesus says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Even Jesus puts this before you, that our obedience matters, that other people might watch us obey and give glory to God. I think our kids, our family would be included in that. In verses 4 through 6, Moses starts to get to the command he's been alluded to. In verse 4, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Let's pause for just a second and look at verse 4. Because this verse is often called the Shema. It's a Hebrew word for hear. It's a basic confession of Judaism. It's a huge verse in Judaism. What this verse means in their context, and in ours, is that our God is totally unique. And that he alone is God. This verse brings us back again to our worldview: He alone is God. It's not me. He is God. And its affirmation denies both polytheism, the idea that there are many gods, and henotheism, The worship of one God without denying the existence of other gods. And struggling through that this week, I realize how many times I've come off as a henathist. That while I recognize the one true God, sometimes I want to live like I'm a minor God who gets to do what I want. And as you look at this verse, you might be wondering, does this challenge the Trinity? And so I'll answer that as well. The word for the Lord, Elohim, is by nature plural. Now, I don't think for a minute that Moses had a Trinitarian view of God, but I do love God's consistency in his word. The Lord our God is one, God says. Again, the statement of our worldview. And in 5.6, he gets to the command. Having stated God's nature, having stated the design, having given you a worldview, God gets to the command. They cause sh- him to share And the command that Jesus says in Matthew, that all the law and the prophets hang on, everything comes to this, and this is what Moses says. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Moses says all the law, all the prophets hang on this. Jesus says the law and the prophets hang on this. Love God. Love God and not just a little. Love him with everything. With your whole heart, with your whole soul, with your whole might. Love God. Just so we're clear as a church, we could take another poll. Is anyone nailing this 100%? Answer? Answer? No. Somebody answer me. I love that. Keep it coming. Love God. Keep this idea before you. Love God. And the principle for us this morning is that your love for God matters. And not just for you. Oh, you'll be edified. You'll be built up. You'll be found whole loving him. But as we find out through the Bible, we see it over and over. To possess something fully is always to pass it along. So immediately following this, the greatest commandment according to Jesus, this is what Moses says. You shall teach them, this is the law, the statutes, diligently to your children. You shall teach them, half-hearted, no diligently to your children. The right application to loving God fully is to pass it along. One of my favorite seminary professors, a guy by the name of Howard Hendricks, if you are a Dallas Seminary student, you called him prof, was notorious for saying this. You cannot impart what you do not possess. You can't give away what you don't first have. So friends, if we're going to step into this more fully, if you can't give away what you don't fully have, if you don't have a real, a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, you can't give it to your kids. Now that is a gut check for you. If you don't have a real and alive and a vibrant love for God in your life, where you're pursuing Him, you're active in Him, you're going to have a really hard time passing that on to your kids. Now, that's not a hopeless statement. That's not a judgmental statement. There's a reality check in all of us for that to say that one of the first and foremost things I've got to do for my life and myself and for my family is to love Jesus and to love him really well. And then when I love Jesus really well, when God is, and we're meeting together and we're working it out, it makes loving my wife all the much easier Makes loving my kids easier. You cannot impart what you do not possess. You must possess loving him. Loving him with your heart, your soul, and your might. And if he isn't first in your life, your kids will know. That was a hard sentence to write, by the way. Love him remembering that your example matters, remembering that your love for him matters, and you teach them to love him. And at this point, it'd be easy to ask, how? What does it look like to teach our families? What does it look like to lead our families? And because we're talking about design, conveniently, the Lord laid it out for us. He has a habit of doing that. So this is how he puts out teaching for us in verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, when you're at home, when you're going places, at bedtime and in the morning. Talk about them. Talk about them all the time. And this, as you step into this, is one of those places you go, is this a literal statement in the Bible? Or is this just kind of a figuratively, like, oh, it'll be about Jesus. And you actually have to step into this to go, I think what Moses is trying to put before these Israelites is all the time, talk about him, All the time, put God's faithfulness before your kids so that you talk of them when you're sitting in your house. Now, I don't know what that looks like at your house, but talking about God's faithfulness when you're at home all the time, it's going to look a lot of different ways. And when you walk by the way, now as a family, we don't go on many walks, and we really don't go on many walks as we turn to winter, but we do drive a lot. So what does it look like for me to talk about God's faithfulness when we're going places and when you lie down? And this one's a little easier. It's a little easier when my kids are going to bed to kind of have that spiritual moment where I want to impart something to them, where the fact that I might have been frustrated or angry, I kind of hope all that dissipates. And Daddy pulls out his Bible and hopes we have a good, sweet moment. And when you rise in the morning when it's early and when it's easy, when you have a fresh start, talk about him. And the design that you get to here is that we would talk about them all the time. Not just once a week. Not just at church. Not just in the occasional devotion. Not drop them off at Awana and hope it sticks. Not hope the church can fix your kids. Not stick them in the youth ministry so that they'll hear truth. These are all good things. In fact, these are all awesome things. But according to God's word, those are all complementary things. Those are the frosting on the cake. And if we don't as families, as a church, start owning the fact that our kids' spiritual development is on us, it's our responsibility, and it's not a curriculum, it's not a system, it's not a doctrine, it's us living it out before them all the time. It's us being consistent before them all the time. And when we blow it, being consistent enough to look at our kids and say, man, I'm so sorry, I I got angry. I didn't mean to spank you that way. I took out my frustration on you. Would you please forgive me? Because that's living the gospel before our kids. That's owning the fact that daddy's not perfect. That the same Jesus that you need when you make mistakes, when you color on the walls or when you cut your sister's hair, The same Jesus you need, daddy needs, just in different ways. Because you have sin and I have sin, they just have different shades. Talk about him all the time. Moses continues, bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be the frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and of your gates. And what Moses continues to do here is don't just talk about it, put it before them. When he says to them, bind them to your hands, he's giving you this idea of this ceremonial clothing that Jews would wear, that they would wrap, they would bind these straps on their arms that would have the law, the commandments, that they'd constantly be reminded of. That they would wear these frontlets on on their, I just lost the word, head things. You understand that that would remind them of God's faithfulness, that his faithfulness would always be before them. Now, culturally, that worked for them, and I don't know what culturally it's going to look like for you, but for us to have the opportunity with our kids to constantly be reminding them of God's faithfulness of his grace might be to say, hey, guys, when you put your socks on, remember that Jesus covers you. And just as your feet kind of stink, Jesus covers your stink, so that you would be reminded that God's love for us covers us and that we're clean before him. Friends, your example matters. Your love for him matters. And your testimony to him matters. Your willingness and ability to consistently talk about God's faithfulness to your children to your grandkids, to your families, matter. It doesn't matter if you're an aunt, uncle, nephew, cousin, stepbrother, stepcousins, uncle. Divvy it out however you want. We're all related to some people here, and we need to be talking to them about God's grace and how it's worked out in our lives so that we'd constantly be reminding each other that none of us are perfect, none of us are nailing it, And it's by the grace of Jesus Christ that we could stand here at all. It's an opportunity to put Him first. As Moses was preparing the Israelites to enter the Holy Land, he reminded them of how God had called them out of slavery into freedom. And just like the Israelites were slaves, so were you and I. We were slaves to sin. And just as God sent Moses to free his people, he sent Jesus to free you and me. And Jesus not only frees us from slavery to sin, he frees us from the law. And in Christ, we are called to be holy, just as he is holy. In Christ, our obedience matters. Our example matters. And in Christ, we are called to love him with our whole all of our hearts, all of our souls and all of our mights. our love for him matters. and in Christ, we're called to bear testimony of his abundant grace, not just to our neighbors, not just to our co-workers, not just to our friends, but to our families. our testimonies matter. Friends, none of us are batting 100% on this. I'm guessing most of us aren't batting 400. I could describe to you many times over my own failings as a spiritual leader and as a dad. Over and over and over, I could put that before you. I don't stand before you as a man who's doing awesome at this, trying to put it before you so that you'll feel guilty. I stand before you to remind us that as in Jesus Christ we've been called and by his grace we're called to pursue a life of increasing faithfulness. That we'd increasingly look at how can I be more and more faithful. That we'd stop and we'd examine ourselves and say what does my testimony look like to my family? And that's especially challenging considering in a couple weeks we've got Thanksgiving and then Christmas. So whatever family gathering you go to Consider what your testimony to those people looks like. And pursue increasing faithfulness. Talk to your kids, talk to your family about what Jesus has done in your life, in your family's life, and in their life. Talk about it at home, and when you go places, and when you lie down, and you wake up. Talk about his faithfulness and this isn't just for parents this is for all of us man what a sweet gift it would be to me if aunts and uncles of my kids called and said can I just tell your kids how gracious God has been to me in my life and they shared how they'd fallen short and how they pursued Him. not just this week but if they call routinely it doesn't matter if you're an aunt or an uncle take that or grandparent man if my grandparents were alive just to hear stories of faith would be so edifying to me Talk to your families about his grace. Let's take a moment and be practical for parents. If this is something you need help with or encouragement, I have a couple of ideas I'll put before you. This could be true for anybody. Consider reading a family devotion together. I have a couple of them sitting right here. This is the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's fantastic. It walks you through the whole Bible, putting a highlight on Jesus. And here's the sweet grace of this. When you see Jesus saving people, giving people faith, freeing them, it's an opportunity for you to step in and not just let this book speak, but to use it as a springboard for your life so that your life can speak too. If you want this book, I'm leaving it here. You're welcome to come take it after the service. This past year, Kevin DeYoung, who's one of my favorite authors, wrote a story called The Biggest Story. In this book, he walks through the Bible, again, showing how Jesus was involved the whole time. What Jesus was doing to bring us to salvation. It's an opportunity for you to read. Now, if you're not a parent, you're a grandparent, aunt, uncle, these make great gifts. I don't get any money for the selling of these books, by the way. Take the time to put God's word, his stories, and your testimony before your family. And sometimes we killer lanes, though we're never as successful as we'd like to be, try to have a thankfulness jar. I read about it several times online. Inevitably, there are a thousand more creative ideas on Pinterest, but this is what we try. From time to time, we encourage those who sit at our table to write down things they're thankful for Ways they saw God move. And then at the end of the year, we take it and we were reminded of all the things and all the ways God was faithful to us. See, we can do a great job as parents going, oh, guys, we got to pray for this, we've got to pray for this. And then never step that next step to go, did you see how God was faithful? Did you see how he answered that? Isn't that awesome? To really celebrate those so our kids start to see that our God is alive and active and moving. That our God responds to our needs. And that even in the slight little things that my little girls want to pray about, God is faithful. He is so faithful. Calvary, let's be a church that disciples our kids, that's careful with the examples we put before them, that shows them Jesus. Let's be a people by His grace that are consistently pursuing a life of increasing faithfulness. That as he has designed us to walk and to lead and to follow each other's examples, that it would be towards Jesus that we walk and towards greater faithfulness. Our examples matter. Our love for him matters. And our testimony matters. Let me pray. Father, as we have walked through this series on design and deception, Father, I've come to all these different places to see how you created and you set up family order for us. And Father, I'm reminded of all the ways I fall short. God, I'm not the only one here. All of us fall short. It's only by the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus, that we're made whole, that forgiveness is found. So we thank you for your son. I pray, Father, that as a church you'd call us to an increasing level of faithfulness in our lives, that the testimony that we have of how you've saved us, how you've made us yours, and how you've called us to be faithful would be increasingly told to our families and our kids. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.